dancing along. Hello, it's us again. Welcome to another one of our financial well-being podcasts. My name is David Lloyd. I'm who am I? I don't know. I write stuff for the television. I do a bit of acting. I do a bit of broadcasting. Um, I'm generally a man about town and bon viveur. And every so often I sit down in my little study at home with my two mates, uh, Chris and Tom, and we talk a load of nonsense about money. And that's what we're doing here again today, except this time we've been joined by a very, very special guest. We're going to be doing a live interview. You know, we do these interviews on the podcast. Well, today we're actually doing it live. This is a huge new experiment for the podcast. So let's hope it all works. So, Tomo, I'm going to ask you to introduce our very special guest because she's your friend. You know more about her than we do. We'd like to uh, hear a little bit more about who you've got lined up for our interview today. Well, I'm really excited to have this person on. I've known her for a, for a number of years now, and I'll give you a little insight into the topic we're going to be talking about later on in the pod is ESG. And if you're wondering what on earth that is, we're going to we're going to unpack all of that. And she is the most knowledgeable person I know on the topic, and I'm really excited to talk to her about it. Um, but it is Clem Chatelain. Hello, Clem. Hi. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for the introduction. Yo, you're welcome. Let's introduce my two uh, chums, I'm going to call them, for want of a better word. We're going to start with Chris. What's happening with you, Chris? And who are you? <laughs> Morning, David. Uh, yeah, so I wrote the Financial Wellbeing book that a lot of this is based on and founder of the Institute of Financial Wellbeing. But, David, I've got a question for you. Live theatre. But this is live theatre happening right now. Have you ever done live telly? I have done live telly. I've done uh, Children in Need. Uh, I've done a and, com, and a comic relief as well, actually. So doing a live broadcast, knowing that there are eight, nine million people watching you and that you've only got one chance to get it right is probably the most nerve jangling thing I have ever done. The great thing about this podcast. Yeah, we're doing it live. But if we make a mistake, we can go back and edit it out. And I tell you what, listeners, we often do. Uh, however, yeah, live, <laughs> telly, live telly is very, very scary. And, and also I bet a, buzz, a huge buzz. Yeah, yeah, I bet it is. And, and it has almost as many listeners as we've got then on the podcast. So, so the pressure is almost as much as this is. <laughs> Indeed it is. Right. So that's Chris Budd. So we've got another very special person I need to introduce as well. He's not just my chum. He's not just my financial advisor as well, actually, Tom Morris. Tom Morris now, I can tell you, is champion of the world. Tell us all about, about that, please, Tomo. Oh, oh impossible. Go on, put um, yourself forward. Don't be pretend you're modest. You're I, to bits I may, uh, yeah, I may or may not have won an award recently, David, um, at the, the Money Marketing Awards in London. It's a, a UK award, and it was the Financial Wellbeing Champion of the Year. So it feels very apt given the podcast that we are doing. So yeah, very, very pleased and, and honoured to be awarded it. And many congratulations. I'm disappointed you're not wearing your medal. You must have got a medal. Did you get a medal, a crown, a cloak or something like that that you could wear to prove how important you are? <laughs> a, <laughs> a special badge. No, I did get it. It's a nice award. It's, it's currently on the, uh, in the, on the Ovation Award mantelpiece because they're ever growing um, there. So, yeah. So there you go. Plug Ovation Finance Bristol, sponsors of said podcast. Um, but, yeah. yeah, yeah Last year, he didn't win. 
<laughs> so that award that he's got is absolutely on merit because of all the hard work he's done, and particularly the work he does for free um, on financial well-being for the Institute. So well done, Tom. I, I was just excited because you might see me looking at that. I've got a window here to a field. There's a deer literally that far away from me. Wow. So carry on. I'm just not really concentrating because I've, well, I've got um, film on my window so it can't see me. Very well, I have back onto the same field, but I don't have that view from my window, so I might just have to leave and go and have a little look. I'll send them and, over. And for those watching this video, you'll notice I don't have a window. That's just the kitchen behind me. Not all of us are as privileged as these two boomers. Yeah. <laughs> I have my own deer park literally back onto my house, you know, don't you know? Right, okay, enough of that nonsense. Before we move on to the main event, which is our interview with our very special guest, we're going to move on to the first of our two regular features. The first one is No Shizzle Sherlock, in which we listen to the words of wisdom from a financial or investment guru and wonder whether this indeed is insightful and meaningful advice or whether it's perhaps as obvious as the pain you feel when you've been Need in the groin by a particularly cross man with bony knees and anger management issues. So, Chris, what is today's No Shizzle Sherlock? Oh, crikey. Um, um, <laughs> I think we just need to absolutely stress that we asked David to write his own jokes for that section. So you'll hear all of David's jokes coming up over the ensuing podcasts. Uh, it doesn't bode well, let's be honest. But um, So uh, this is one that doesn't actually have an author. It's been said so many times. Uh, whoever said it first is, is lost in the mist of time. It's an evergreen classic. Buy low, sell high, repeat. Well, speaking as a non-expert in the field, that sounds like a real notion of Sherlock to me. I can't see anyone arguing with that. However, given that I'm not the expert in both financial well-being or investing, I therefore must defer to my learned friend, Tomo. What do you make of this? Buy low, sell high, repeat. Sounds easy, right? Well, I'd love to be able to do that. I can then go sit on a beach and not have to do these podcasts with you folk. Uh, <laughs> obviously, I'm joking. No, it's, it's um, yeah, if you can, obviously, that would be super helpful. But the problem is... No one really knows when those points are, to be honest with you. Uh, we think of day traders try and do it. Most of them are really unsuccessful. I mean, really unsuccessful at doing it. So for those listening, what can we actually take from this? Well, we don't know when the low point is. We don't know when the high point is. So a lot of the time, don't bother trying to predict when it is going to be. If markets are going through a wobble stay strong and stay in don't try and sell low which is the ultimate worst thing you can do um and if you're about to put money into the market for the first time or you've come into some money you want to put money in it's impossible to know when the right point to go is all oh, markets are looking a bit high or i'm going to wait for them to drop a bit you won't be able to time it very well so there's definitely an element of just get in if it's right for you if you've got a plan that says invest get cracking in summary, yeah, buy low, sell high sounds great, but it's incredibly difficult to do. OK, so, Chris, have you got anything to add to that? No, I think that's very wise advice. The world is absolutely full of people who have followed that principle and got it wrong. Um, 
there's also a, a big argument about uh, markets, the variation in capital values of markets is perhaps not as great these days as it was 20, 30 years ago. And so the dividend income and the, and the income that you get from investments, should you should focus on that, I would suggest. Uh, open to Tomo disagreeing with this, but I think you should focus on that more than you should focus on whether the actual capital is going up and down, because that will happen all the time. Uh, that, that's a really interesting point. If you, the longer you're invested for, the more access you have to the income that it produces so that's another thing that's lost if you sit on the sidelines um so yeah if 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 you manage to find the secret source of buy low and sell high uh if you find me on at ovation tomo on twitter <laughs> i'd really like to hear from you because i'll tell you what i really want to be sitting on that beach because quite frankly as i said this podcast can go do one <laughs> OK, so until such time as you sit on that beach, you are, in fact, sitting on a fence on this one, aren't you? You're saying in principle, <laughs> yes, there is no shizzle, Sherlock, but in practice, you don't want to commit to doing it all the time because that is actually impossible. Is that a fair summary? I think so, David. I think so. Good. Invest for the longer term and enjoy the ride as best you can. Uh, right. Uh, let's move on then to the next of our regular features. Yeah. So, so Tomo, I know claim you're not necessarily au fait with the podcast. However, this is a moment where we talk, uh, where we get financial advice from uh, Titus Tomo. Now, the legend that is Titus Tomo, regular listeners will know this, but I'm going to repeat it for your benefit and also for the benefit of those people listening to us for the first time. Many years ago, Tom took out uh, Chris, in fact, and another colleague of theirs, Ian, to lunch. He said, guys, I'm going to take you out to lunch. It's my treat. And they were absolutely gobsmacked because this wasn't something that he was renowned for doing at all. So they went out for lunch and they went to a particular, he said, I know just the place. We're going to go along to this particular venue. So they went there and he said, do you know what? There's a thing that they have on the menu here. It's a chicken dish. It's absolutely fantastic. I really, really recommend this. So they both went, oh, yeah, OK, that looks very good. And so they ate it and then it came to pay the bill. And it turned out that Titus Tomo had a voucher. He had a voucher that could only be redeemed against the particular meal that they just all enjoyed. And so he got to treat them all, or so it seemed, and it cost him nothing at all. And this is where uh, the legend that is Titus Tomo was born. So every week since then, for the 90 odd uh, episodes of this podcast that we've done, we get Titus Tomo to come up with a tip as to how we can save money. But before we come to him, we're going to do round everybody else and see if we can get any more advice. Uh, Chris, have you got anything? I do, actually. I've got a bit of a sensible one for once because we're, um, we're calling this in the autumn. Um, and I know it's not exactly new, but uh, for the last couple of years, I've really got into batch cooking of soups, right? I, I love it. My two standards are scotch broth, which is great for breakfast, and a cauliflower and blue cheese. Little secret here, listeners, a dash of truffle oil makes all the difference. Um, I like quite, quite like a pea and ham as well. So I make a batch of about 20 portions, okay? And <laughs> You must have a very big pot, 20 portions, unless you, unless you eat like a borrower. <laughs> as has often been commented, I do have a very big pot. Um, I bought a huge one for this very purpose. But this is the, this is the little tip, right? Get a Chinese takeaway a few days before because the plastic trays that the Chinese takeaway comes in is perfect one portion size for soups. So every time we get a takeaway, I store up all of those and then they also stack really easily in the freezer. So at the moment, our freezer is absolutely stuffed full of soups all in these containers. 
Well, Chris, that is not nice. only a brilliant nice. tip, but that's exactly what I do as well. I do exactly that. I make a different form of soup. I usually do a carrot and lentil soup, but I do that with the Chinese takeaway containers. I, I also have some special plastic containers I have for that. And you've inspired me to get out there. I must also, uh, what I'm going to add to that is apples. I've got an apple tree in the garden and I've got loads of apples now that are ripe for picking. So I'm going to go out there. I'm going to puree them. I'm going to freeze them. I'm going to make some apple chutney. Uh, make some. Uh, I tend to make some little individual apple crumbles and freeze those as well. So look at us saving all that money in these in these hard financial times. Um, Clem, before we yeah, move on, apart to the from the Chinese himself. takeaway that came a couple of days before. <laughs> Jeez, honestly, I got yeah, to, sorry, listeners. For... I'm going to have to go and have a word with them after this. But they last forever. <laughs> they last forever. Those pots. But right, Clem, have you got any top money saving tips for us today? Yes, I do. I have a dog and at the start of the cost of living crisis becoming a thing, we um, learned a lot about people giving up their pets because they couldn't afford feeding them. And I have a particularly picky dog. That means if I put food in front of her, she is very likely to just turn up her nose about it. And then I'll have the food out and I'll probably have to throw it away. So, and as you know, dog food can be very expensive. So, um, I have a way of recycling her food quite well. So she eats beef mints frozen and not, you know, so it's cheap. I get it from Asda because it's actually, no, I get it from Tesco's because per kilogram is cheaper. And I give it to her frozen because she likes it frozen. But if she turns up her nose at it, I will put it in the fridge, let it defrost. And then for her dinner, I will cook it up so it'll be safe to eat. Uh, and so then I won't have anything to throw away. Brilliant. So if you get a bit creative with how you feed your dog, which is healthy for her, um, you can save some money. There you go. No food waste from the dog. <laughs> Excellent. That's Brilliant. a great tip. Brilliant. Now, uh, Tomo, what have you got for us? Well, this was a tip from a fellow financial uh, planner, a chap called Colin Lowe. Uh, he's a, his, his humour is always 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 makes me laugh. So he said, if you've got a few errands to do around town, got a got a got a dart around, it would cost you fuel. Just book in some test drives for some for some cars. <laughs> you can usually keep it for the day, drive it around, come back, hand the keys in, free fuel. Probably driven a nice car an interesting take on it but there as long as you don't buy going and having no intention of buying said car i think that could work <laughs> so yeah you thank you Colin. many times though you have you can only do it a certain amount of times with each dealer really yeah that just made me think it need to be a meaningful errand run you'd really need to store everything up that you'd be meaning to do and then go right i've got a day in a nice car i'm going to go around and do the errands spend about 30 quid's worth of fuel or whatever it might be. Uh, as we're going to go on to the topic in, in a moment, why don't you go and test drive an electric car and it'd be even more efficient? There you go. There you go. So, Colin, thank you for that one. Um, I'm not even sure if he meant, meant it seriously or not. I couldn't tell you. Maybe he's done it himself, but there you go. You've just been outed to the world, Colin. Right, I will leave listeners to come up with, uh, to resolve that with their own consciences and decide whether or not they think that that's something that they're happy to do. Right, OK, let's now move on then to our live interview uh, in which uh, 
Tom will sound like he really knows what he's talking about. Chris will also sound like he really knows what he's talking about. And I'll just make stuff up. And if you all start talking about stuff that I don't understand, I'll chip in and say, what the hell does that mean? Tobo, over to you. Brilliant. Thank you, David. Uh, I think we ought to explain that Clem's background, you may have seen before, has changed slightly. Uh, technical difficulties. This is what happens when you record podcasts. Um, but but we have a new background for Clem. Uh, so let, as I mentioned earlier, I'm really excited about having Clem on, on, on this podcast today. Um, and hopefully he's going to give us some really good insight into the world of ESG, sustainable, ethical investing, this whole um, maze of terminology that many people are trying to wrap their heads around. Um, but I thought it'd be really helpful if, Clem, if you just give a bit of a background to yourself and, and we can go from there. And I think people will understand why you've got the right to talk about this. Right. So I'm going to start right after I finished university. I started my career in financial planning at a fellow Bristolian uh, financial planning firm. And I started there. Um, and six weeks in, I went to a sustainability conference that was hosted by Worthstone. And I saw, I got really inspired by the people there who were asset managers, discretionary fund managers, other financial planners who had really tried to bring sustainable investing to their clients. And that's when I told the directors at Pardon Norton, we really ought to do this. Surely there's some clients who really want to do this too. And so, um, you know, four years later, I was the head of sustainable investing there. I built central investment proposition for Pardon Norton, some bespoke portfolios for clients. I was involved in their B Corp accreditation. Um, and after four years, I realized that financial planning is a great career, but it's not my passion, really sustainability is. And so I moved over, I had the opportunity to move over to asset management. And so I took that opportunity and I now work at CCLA, which is the church charity in local authority investments. It's an asset manager, which primarily serves the church, the of England charities, uh, about 40% of the market and uh, local authorities. Um, so, and there I'm currently involved in integrating sustainability in the investment process. So when analysts look at a the company, they look at the financials, but they also look at the sustainability credentials and the way they do that, that is what I'm sort of taking care of, designing, refining, improving. Brilliant. Thanks, Clem. So I think listeners can definitely agree that you are well placed to talk about this topic. Um, I said we're going to try and unpack some of this uh, terminology that's out there. Um, so if you don't mind, I think it's got to start with what on earth does ESG mean? So ESG is an acronym and it stands for environmental, social and governance, not government, but governance. <laughs> so the way companies are governed, managed, uh, environmental and social issues. Um, can be very broad so environmental issues can be how does a company um, manage the amount of energy it uses uh, or the uh, or the operations affect the biodiversity or the you know the where, where it's operating uh, it can be things about its greenhouse gas emissions whether it's polluting the environment and social issues are things like does it support does it pay its workers a fair wage um, does it provide uh, development professional development um, does it support its uh, workers unionizing? Um, so the topics, the ESG is very broad and technically there are a gazillion things you can look at. 
Okay. But more importantly, I think ESG is like a pair of glasses um, with through which you look at the company. And how those glasses are constructed will differ from one asset manager to another. Um, but it's very much a tool as opposed to a definitive sort of, um, this is what ESG is. It's a very much a tool to look at companies. I'm interested by those glasses and how they might differ between asset managers. Just, just for the benefit of listeners, you might not know, asset managers, we mean in this instance, perhaps um, fund managers, the, 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 the way in which you might actually invest this way through a fund. Is that what, what you primarily mean by asset manager? Yes. So it's the people who will, you know, look at companies and then invest in a selection of them and put them in a basket, which is called a fund, which you can then access via all sorts of ways uh, through your pension or your ISA or whatever you, you put money in to invest for the long term. Okay. So though, going to, back to the, that glasses analogy, um, I wonder how Bristolian that sounded, glasses analogy. I'm always wonder. I'm going to listen back. I just really wanted to check that. Um, how how does that differ? So I guess it all comes down to the investment philosophy of the asset manager, right? So like different financial planning firms will have different investment philosophies, different asset managers will have different investment philosophies. Um, so I guess if you're somebody who believes that markets are broadly efficient, um, you're probably going to invest in like an index fund, right? Or um, something like that. And an index fund basically just tracks a basket of companies um, and, and and that's it. Um, so the advantage, to, and so if you're an index manager, you're less likely to pick companies who are just going to try to replicate this index. And so when you're going to look at sustainability, you're probably going to look at sustainability in a very systematic way. You might choose one particular thing. I think there's one asset manager who says we're going to only invest or overweight companies that have a lower greenhouse gas emissions uh, and then invest less in those companies that have higher greenhouse gas emissions so the, the big polluters invest less of those and then they'll make a fund out of it and that's and that's their ESG um, but others will maybe take a framework and say well we're going to assess companies based on a whole list of characteristics which either they have developed themselves or they are using some sort of broader framework that is out there. Um, I don't want to get you technical, but there's one called SASB framework, uh, which we use as well. And it basically highlights what are the higher risk areas in a company um, that have to do with sustainability that could impact them financially. And to give an example, if you look at um, an indicator could be the rate of injury of your staff. Very relevant if you work in the mining sector, less so if you work in software engineering, right? <laughs> or in the financial sector, because we just sit at our desks. But if you're in mining, you know, injury prevention is very, very important because if you have lots of injuries or deaths or anything like that, it has not only a very big human cost, but it has a lot of financial costs to the company as well. So that is this, this that is like a different way of looking at it. Um, and and so as you can see there's different pairs of glasses you can put on and therefore see the company through different lenses and uh, and you know appraise their sustainability in different ways okay now i'm i'm 
I'm going to ask a question that comes from a, a I see David moving. Have you got have you got a question? Because it's very very much up for you you chiming in here. Yes, yes. Well, actually, I'm I'm really interested in this, and clearly there's a there's a huge ethical dimension to this, isn't there? And I'm just wondering at what point you set your ethical benchmark, because clearly there is money to be made from investing in in oil, in big pharma, in in nuclear, in in lots of things which some people may find that they're not ethically comfortable with. But then you've also then got that balance, haven't you, between saying, well, actually, if you invest money in that oil mine, I can make a thousand percent for you over five years or whatever it might be. I'm plucking that figure out midair. So the temptation must always be for somebody that wants to make money to go down a route that is perhaps less less ethical than than another one, which is more sustainable, but perhaps is potentially less financially rewarding. So the challenge, I guess, for you must be where you set that benchmark and how you make those decisions about what level of uh, ethicalness, if that's a word, if it isn't, I've just invented it, that you're going to apply to your investing. Yes. So what I've just talked about is how you assess companies, but then there is values alignment, which is a separate thing, a separate process. So ESG just looks at sort of the risks that the companies are facing from a sustainability perspective. Ethics are values driven. And so the way CCLA looks at ethics is it asks its clients, the church, charities and local authorities. And so we've got a bunch of different charities um, who will say they don't want to invest in tobacco um, oil or in the oil companies (laughs) to, to an extent, because when you say you don't want to invest in oil, do you don't want to invest in extraction, production, refinement, supply, you know, sale? There's a huge, there's a supply chain. So you have to then find your cutoff point or you can cut off everything. You know, there's just different ways people want to do it. Uh, others might not want to invest in alcohol to a certain extent, adult entertainment. Uh, we've got obviously clients who have faith-led or faith-based um, exclusions, which have to do with reproductive rights and things like that. Um, So that is very much client-led. We do client consultation um, every few years, and then based on that, we adjust the the ethical screens. Uh, But that is very much aligning with what the clients want. It has nothing to do with what I think or, you know, the head of sustainability thing that's very much client-led. And so so usually the, the, the ethical aspect is very much about avoiding the worst, um, and then anything else that has to do with the assessing is trying to see, you know, which are, which companies have uh, sustainability risks that are well managed. And if they're not well managed, what can we do about it? Is it a case of almost once you've got that values driven route, what we would call negative screening, is that a fair, fair, so negatively screened, right? You get rid and um, and this has been around for an awful long time. This type, this yes, type of, yes. of of investing, um, and then you're left with companies that you can invest in, or, yes. or loans that you can invest in, and you're left you're left with that. And then it's about looking at which ones are actually going to provide, you know, some positive performance for for who you work with. But also, you're now drifting into the phase of actually trying to make them make a good impact on the world so i think the way if we summarize it at ccla it's act assess and align 
So we talked about aligning, which is your ethical screen. So we don't want to invest in XYZ. Assessing is, uh, for example, um, looking at this injury rate example. So if a mining company has a high injury rate, we might consider talking to them as to what is happening and why. And maybe that might we might reconsider investing in them because of that. Um, so that's the assessing. And then there's the acting part, which we, we say we have act first for certain reasons, but it's actually what, what comes sort of after all of that. And acting is about, you know, talking to companies and improving their sustainability performance, if you like. So the way they deal with risks that, um, that could affect them financially, but also affect the communities they work in, the people they work with, the environment. Um, so yes, acting and like trying to improve companies is, should be a core part of every asset manager, every person mm -hmm. who, who does that. Because in the end, if you want to have a real positive impact in the world and you want to change the world, you need real world change. Um, for example, there are lots of people out there who, and clients who really want to say, I want to invest in line with my values and I only want to invest in the good companies, the sustainable companies. And uh, let me tell you, there is no such thing as a sustainable company. Every single company has its issues because they're run by humans and humans are flawed. Um, and while it's, it's, that is great, if you do not invest in a company, it means you also don't have the opportunity to change it. Um, you can still do it, but there are ways around it, but you, you're not sitting at the table, you're not a shareholder, you're not an owner in the company, so you don't have access to actually talking to management and prodding them on whatever the issue is. Um, so for example, recently there has been a lot of discussion with Amazon around um, the fact that they treat their workers very badly in their warehouses. We're an investor in Amazon and we co-sign with other investors letters to Amazon and try to you know, get a meeting with them and talk to them about how they have to improve the way they treat their workers because they're probably breaching all sorts of laws. So it's, there is this three parts to investing, this aligning, you know, avoiding the worst, whatever you really cannot, do not want to be involved in. And there's possibly also not much, um, you know, there's not much you can do. A tobacco company is a tobacco company. <laughs> you know? how, how else is it going to become better? We know that tobacco is unhealthy. There's no need for it in society. Um, so you, you won't be able to change them. And then it's about assessing the companies you do have on their sustainability and then seeing where you might have opportunities to improve them and then acting and really trying to achieve real world change um, through engaging with companies and collaborating with other asset managers to do that. And is there evidence to suggest that uh, uh, with that attitude, the, the impact of sustainable investing can really change the attitudes of companies and that they will actually listen to you because of the power that you have financially? There is, I, I'm not sure if there's like a broad study that's been done. Uh, there might have been, but I'm not aware of it. But there's a lot of anecdotal evidence. I think um, every asset manager has stories around engagements they've done that have been successful. Um, one of the major engagement programs that is at CCLA is around modern slavery, uh, because modern slavery is an incredibly widespread problem, pretty much 
most of the goods we import in the UK somewhere have modern slavery in their supply chain. Like the, the problem is really acute. Something like 18 billion of goods come to the UK that have modern slavery in their supply chain. And so we have, I think, engaged with um, a company on the way they recruit people in the Middle East uh, as part of, um, I think it was as part of their supply chain or, or the, the work they do there. And it had turned out that um, we told them, you know, please have a look because we know modern slavery is everywhere. So um, if you say you haven't found it, it's probably you haven't searched well enough. <laughs> so we asked them to find it and then we asked them to fix it and then to prevent it with policies and safeguards later on. But one of the examples, we asked them to find modern slavery. They went out and they said, we found something. And what had happened is that the way people were recruited into their business was that they were going through a recruitment agency that was loads, but they were saying, well, you have to pay this huge fee for me to give you this job. And that meant that these people then had to pay off this debt um, while working to be able to eventually be free and free laborers. And basically, so that is modern slavery, right? Like they were loaded with a debt before they even started working, which meant until they actually got their first paycheck, they they had nothing. They had no shelter, no food, nothing. And upon finding that, the company, um, first of all, paid off these people's debts <laughs> and then um, had a, and then tried to prevent it by putting safeguards as to how these people come to them in the first place and um, try to make sure that they, they get workers in a way that that doesn't put them into this debt bondage. And, and it was hugely successful because we actually helped loads of people in the end, uh, first of all, pay off the debt because they shouldn't have had that debt in the first place, um, but also make sure that in the future this, this is prevented and this doesn't happen. And, and there's, there's other stories. Uh, recently, we had co-filed a shareholder resolution with Unilever and Unilever always prides itself that it makes healthy foods. But when we looked at a, a third party assessment of this, it doesn't didn't quite support that claim. And so we said, well, how about instead of saying you do something, you give us disclosure on the nutritiousness of your food based on how the government, uh, the government's, um, you know, on the on the back of the label, uh, break down how much fat, sugar and salt there is not your own thing, just this sort of government accepted thing. And um, they agreed to it. Um, they said, yeah, okay, we'll, we'll do that. We'll do our own and we'll do the government one and then we can compare and actually know what's what. And, that, and that's part of the engagement with you around healthy foods because around the world, you know, obesity is a huge problem, uh, not having access to nutritious food, companies promoting unhealthy foods um, is, is a problem. So there are, and there's anecdotal evidence around this, um, but it is something that, asset management as a whole needs to bring closer to people because I work in it, so I hear about it, I know it's working. But people out there don't get that news relate um, a lot. And so it's difficult for them to understand how important it is and how much of a part of the job this actually is. So I, that this is a really interesting point you just raised that this is going on. And even in the advice community, it's not well publicized to us that this is going on. Um, in, so if I could split it into two camps for a moment, the asset manager, and I'd love to know, as I would, one would assume that if you're in the asset manager, you're a fund manager who has, let's assume it's not greenwashed, 
what we mean by greenwash is just slapping ESG on it just to try and market it. But actually, it's genuinely an ESG, an ethical, sustainable fund, all term, terminology in different ways. One would expect that their stewardship, that their ability, that they are talking to companies about this. Is that, is that a fair assumption that those companies are absolutely driving this alongside you as well? It, can we make that assumption? I don't want to bash my fellow colleagues in industry, but <laughs> there it isn't clear whether every asset manager is as transparent as they should be around what they do on stewardship. So recently there was a case where um, shareholders uh, proposed that Sainsbury's adopt a living wage and not the living wage of the government, but the living wage set by the Living Wage Foundation, which arguably is higher because it reflects the real cost of living based on a specific basket of goods that they're looking at, right? And across the UK, you have lots of living wage employers. And uh, CCLA doesn't hold Sainsbury, so we couldn't vote on the issue, but we wholeheartedly sort of supported it in the sense that if we were to hold Sainsbury, we would vote for. Um, but there were some asset managers who, one in particular, who prides itself on being very sustainable and markets itself to charities and so on, who voted against it. And it is a very nuanced topic. And there's people who say, yes, it, it's, it's, a, it's a good thing. But um, uh, there's all sorts of nuances around this, around what it means to their wage bill and how in control they are of that and so on and so forth. Because if you're a living wage employer, you have to pay that set of living wage, right? And it also then to have, has to apply to your third-party contractors. And do you have control over that? And so it is not just – it is never an easy and black-and-white issue. Yeah. And um, they got a lot of negative press and negative outcomes from that. I think if some clients even left them. So when you buy into a sustainable fund – it's less about the portfolio makeup, but a lot more about what the asset manager is doing to affect real world, cha world change through stewardship. The stewardship also comes in two different ways, right? That's about there's the company side of it, but there's also the government side of it. So, for example, CCLA has been engaging with the government for I don't know how many years on the UK Modern Slavery Act and how to make that more, how to improve it and make it more you know, uh, meaty in a sense. <laughs> so it actually helps, makes company, uh, gives companies more um, uh, to make, to take more action towards eradicating modern slavery in their supply chain. Is it, um, just to dive in, stewardship, just to clarify, is this idea of, of speaking to companies and trying to improve what they do? Is this what we mean by yes. that, that particular, again, we can drawn into via, <laughs> I haven't known this terminology already. But I, I do wonder with the thinking about that conversations with governments, it's almost like the asset managers or asset managers such as yourself, because you have the time to do so. You're almost lobbying on behalf of the values of your customers and your clients yes. um, rather than lobbying always being as dare I say as we all think of is big company who have an ulterior motive to make sure they make profits it's nice to hear that lobbying's happening on the other side of the of yes the fence. definitely uh, that, uh, that that's positive 
Yes, and I think what's so special about the place I work at at the moment is that um, we have we provide secretariat to the church investors group. So there's about 60 different members on there. Um, and so when we do lobby a company, even though we are not very big in terms of the, the you know, the, the assets under management in terms of the, the billions we manage in, we've managed 14 billions, but in asset management, that's a very small amount <laughs> when you compare to BlackRock with their seven trillions or whatever it is nowadays. Um, we usually speak on behalf of church investors. So any sort of, you know, most of the churches out there, because we actually look after most of them out there. Um, and also the charity market to a very, very large part, 40%. And so even though we're very small, we're representing a, a whole stakeholder group. And so people tend, companies tend to look at this a bit more seriously because it's not just, I guess, a random collection of investors. It's a very definitive group. Okay, so I have a question for you now, Clem. You talked about BlackRock on their multi-trillion pounds worth of investments. If yeah. they applied the same philosophy that you apply to the way in which you uh, manage your assets, would they make the same amount of money? Um, I mean, I guess so. Um, I mean, if we, if, so if this question is about returns, um, I don't think... I mean, I would have to look very closely. You know, you'd have to compare risk adjusted and so on, and then compare different, you know, like for like. But well, I guess um, the question that's underlying that is, if what you're doing is so good and and and, and palpably it is, why doesn't everybody do it? <laughs> well, <laughs> that is a good question. Um, I think it just depends. It depends what people's motivations are as well and how they're set up. Um, there are there are other investors out there who engage with companies um, and do all that good stuff. Um, but the reason there might be less of that with other asset managers is particularly if they're U.S. asset managers. It's not because U.S. people are bad, <laughs> but because sustainability is a very politically polarized issue in the U.S., I would say there's an outright war between the people who support sustainability and the people who are obviously paid by certain vested interests and try to make it go away. So much so that U.S. asset managers um, have been banned in certain states from managing pension monies and so on that are sort of state pensions and things like that because they apply uh, – ESG pair of glasses to the way they select their investments and to avoid doing that uh, to avoid being banned certain asset managers in the US have decided that instead of voting as one block and saying this is how we're going to vote this is how we're going to speak to this company about X, Y, Z issue they're trying to hand the, the, the voting to the clients to the end clients and say look there are these shareholder resolutions or whatever votes to be had at these companies, how would you like to vote? And then feed that through and then vote accordingly based on a democratic mandate, if you like, other okay, companies. So, so, so if I get this right, so if you are if you own a fund mm. with X, and a lot of it is, I guess, I'm starting to see more index funds actually trying to actively be better stewards. I'm hearing a lot of that, although I get a feeling there might be a tad bit of greenwashing going on there. Um, 
but but actually going to you could hold just a small amount in a fund but because you're a shareholder in or unit holder in that fund and they're a big shareholder of x company you're having a you could have a say to that yeah and it might come back that over 50 percent of our unit holders have said we want to invest in that way and they will put that forward to the board of that company, company on behalf yeah. of the fund okay that's 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 an yeah. interesting it is a very interesting concept and i think it's it's quite good but shareholder resolutions can sometimes be worded in a very mean way so you have a title that looks good but you have a content that's actually very contrary to what you think you're voting on so we had that as well so voting very much is you have to be as savvy as a lawyer is (laughs) and try to find where the inconsistencies are and what it means and if you vote one way what the consequences are and so on it can take a really long time to figure it out what the best way forward is especially sometimes got pages and pages of supporting documents to go through um but um yeah so i guess to go back to david's question um pretty much all asset managers out there um have incorporated sustainability to a certain degree some more for marketing purposes some for more you know conviction purposes or like you know out of conviction that is a good thing to do um but certainly the application and the outcomes are very different across the industry um and it's now that I work in it and you know we look at competitive slide decks and things like that which they do equally they look at ours you can and you can st- and start picking them apart um, you start look seeing where inconsistencies lie and where greenwashing appears and where you know one claim is made there but it's not supported by something else mm-hmm. so it is sadly the way it is at the moment <laughs> So I just want I just want to give some um, some something for people to go away with, um, and just in the interest of of wrapping things up, Clem, um, if people want to look at this and invest, and I think UK um, investors because that's the world that I I know, um, obviously you can invest globally, but for, for UK retail investors, is um, this is obviously out there, and and you can nod or not nod to this. Um, if they go and their fund is either going to do one of two things, there's a, if it says ethical fund or sustainable fund or ESG fund, it's likely to list somewhere what it excludes investing in on yeah. that negative screen. So that's it a should. starting point. Yeah. But we're seeing a lot more of this positive screen, which talks more to what you've been talking about, where they are actively maybe trying to no, maybe trying to invest in companies that are really trying to make a, a difference in a particular space. It might have an environmental positive screen. So they will actively look for for companies that are trying to move the dial in that area is that a fair summary yes but not do not be fooled by thinking you're actually having any additional impact <laughs> mm. because we're talking here about equity markets and so the way equity markets work is the company takes a slice of their ownership pie right and says 10 percent or 50 100 percent is going to be in the stock market which is a closed system and whether you buy or sell that company, the company itself never sees the money. It just goes mm. from one investor to the other. Mm. And if you're selling something, somebody has to buy it. That's how, that's how it works. And so just because you invest a lot in sust- or sustainable or good companies 
the only thing, if everybody does that, the only thing you're doing is just increasing the demand and so the price, you know, and there's a limited supply, so the price will just go up for the firm. So it is a lot more, it is a lot less about what's in your portfolio and a lot more about what is the asset manager doing in the background to affect real world change, real world emissions reductions, real world, you know, uh, um, setup of worker rights and the right to unionize, the right to have living wage and so on, and lobby the, the firms on this and the governments on these issues. Then saying, oh, I'm investing only in green companies. Look at me. Ha, ha, ha. I'm such a great investor. No, you're just literally took the crap, took a broom and pushed it to the other side of the room. <laughs> so ultimately, real world change should be what we're all working towards. Uh, I think we yes. can probably agree on that. Uh, Clem, yes. it's been absolutely fascinating listening to you talk today. And, and certainly as a, somebody who sits outside of the financial industry, I've been very heartened to know that there are people like you who take this issue really, really seriously. And also to, to, to begin to explain the complexity of the issue as well and how there's lots of different ways of looking at this. So uh, thank you very, very much for joining us today. And I hope our listeners have also found that really interesting as well. So until the next time, uh, I um, hope you've enjoyed today. And we look forward very much to you joining us for another one of our Financial Wellbeing Podcasts. If you want to be notified of upcoming podcasts, make sure you click the subscribe button. For more information on the topics discussed in today's podcast and to purchase a copy of the Financial Wellbeing book, please visit www.financialwell-being.co.uk. We'd love to hear your thoughts and ideas on financial well-being. You can send us an email at contact at financialwell-being.co.uk. You can follow us on Twitter at FinWellBeing. Chris is Ovation Chris, and David is at Dave underscore Backwell. This has been an Ovation Finance production. Thanks for listening to the Financial Wellbeing Podcast. More interesting than you might think.